scripture for us tonight. It's Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Hello, everyone. <laughs> one. I got one hello back from the front row. See what it, it really pays to be the front row. Um, I'm glad to be here. I know. I hope you are too. Um, so, you know, two days, and then it's Valentine's Day. Are we emotionally prepared, um, no matter where you are with that? Is that a heavy question? Is that too heavy to start with? <laughs> um, look, there's a lot of hype around that holiday on each side, single and in a relationship. So, please, deep breaths. Okay, so, um, I'm a campus minister. My name is Sid Druin. I will not give you romantic advice for the rest of the sermon, uh, but... I am the RUF campus minister, Reformed University Fellowship uh, campus minister. And what RUF is, is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve you all and this campus. And we mean everyone. We don't want to just be for one kind of people. We want to be a place for every kind of person. And that means whatever your personal background is, whatever scene you're on in campus, we hope you feel welcomed. We hope you feel like you belong here because you do. And uh, we, we also mean that spiritually. We know a lot of you are in different places spiritually. And so we're just really glad uh, you're here. Whoa. No matter where you are with Jesus or where you are with Christianity, we really um, are just really glad you're here. So um, all that is to say is thanks for coming, especially if it's your first time. I would love to meet you. Um, I'm sure my interns, Maddie and... Eric, and they're not just mine, they're your interns too. Uh, they, they are also here, they'd love to meet you. There's plenty of students too. And uh, I, you know, you can go to the food in the back uh, and stay around if you can. So this semester in large group, we're looking at the biblical book of Isaiah. Um, and we're looking at the topic of who God is, who is God. And as a reminder, uh, the book of Isaiah is worth studying and this topic, who is God, is worth studying for kind of two reasons. First, Isaiah is picturing God in a full screen, kind of IMAX, surround sound, moving picture version. And that's leading, that kind of just full, um, full view of God leads us to ask a really helpful question. Are we sure we really know who God is? 
Are we sure we really know who God is? And then secondly, the second reason that Isaiah is worth the time and the energy is that these same scenes of God act like an MRI for God's character. And this is so important for the uncertain times in our lives. Those times where and when we feel uh, excitement or happiness or suffering or sorrow, fears or boredom. And I think a lot of us feel that in a given day. (laughs) So hopefully this will feel relevant. And the idea really is when we don't know what God is doing, when we can't trace his hand, we can trust his heart. We can trace who he is at a heart and character level. And so, um, so far we've done that in the last few weeks. We've been looking, we looked first at God's bigness and his nearness. And then we looked at God's holiness. And then last week we looked at God's trustworthiness. And tonight we're going to look at Isaiah 11. And we're going to look at God's, uh, that God is meant to be our hope. Our hope. So before we go there, before we do that, I'm going to do what I usually do, which is pray. Would you pray with me and possibly for me? Uh, thanks. Father, I am really grateful to be here. Um, I'm grateful uh, that I get an opportunity to speak um, about you, but also that we can learn about you together. Um, well, as you know, um, there's lots of places where I don't know you well. There's lots of places where I struggle. Um, there's lots of places um, where everyone in this room feels um, a lack of your presence, and there are places where we, where everyone in this room feels like maybe reality got a little bit thinner and we feel closer to you, uh, no matter where we are with you. And I pray that you would meet us, that this would be a thin place in reality, uh, that you would show up as you promise, and that, um, that going through this book, which is 2,700-something years old, would really feel so modern and so contemporary and so um, right where we live. We ask, Jesus, that you be lifted up, that you be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. And I pray for our time together, uh, that we would meet you, and that it would change us. In your name we pray. Amen. So, uh, I was recently making my lunch and listening to the radio, uh, Adventures in Multitasking, uh, which should be pretty safe, but I heard this story that was, that's true, that made me sort of stop that fragile process of multitasking, and just kind of stand and sit for a while. And here's a story, it's a story about a dad, am I like in this? Anyway, I'm going to move over this way. I have this, like, fear that's projected on my forehead. Um, I'm sure it's about revelation. Okay, so, um, but I think, like, basically the story is this. Focus. It's a story of a father and a, his teenage daughter. And in his own words, he's telling the story, she has Asperger's. His father was determined to help his daughter to accomplish this age-old rite of passage. He wanted to make sure that his daughter could drive, and so she had to pass the driving test and get a driving license. After countless hours in the family car together, going over the road test, over each question by each question, um, the week finally came for his daughter to go to the DMV uh, and to do her driving test, to get in the car with an instructor and to take her driving test. Uh, The last minute preparations were fast and furious. Uh, because the dad knew this was like the hardest final aspect of getting a license, especially for her and her condition. And so the night before um, ended in the dad delivering what he thought was a very impassioned lecture uh, to the daughter uh, that ended with this idea that his daughter was to, quote, act normal, whatever she could do to act normal. And out of love, he really didn't want anyone with the DMV 
to have any excuse not to give her a license and to not let her drive. But this night before cram session and lecture ended badly with the dad shouting and the daughter coldly pointing to their family dog who was then cowering in the corner to express her emotions. And so the day finally arrived and the father drove uh, his daughter to the local Connecticut DMV and he gave his daughter the final instructions and tips on how imperative it was that she acts completely normal no matter what she does. And then they're sitting in the waiting room and finally her name is announced on the PA system. Uh, he gets up, looks at her, she gets up and then all of a sudden she just lays on the floor. And he's like, the instructor is coming out of the door at any minute and he panics, he's reaching over her and he's harshly whispering at her, uh, this is not normal. This is definitely not normal. <laughs> and she, he's pulling her arm and he's going limb. And then finally she responds by kind of loudly explaining to her, to him into the room, but dad, my doctor told me to lay down flat on my back when my back hurts. And my back hurts right now. And that's what I'm doing. And somehow the father gets his daughter off the ground before the instructor sees. And she enters the driving test with the instructor. Uh, and I'll finish that story in a few, but I wanted to kind of pause there and sort of, if you're like me, you kind of feel a number of emotions in that story at once. It's a complicated story. That's part of why I stopped multitasking, right? Um, on the one hand, it's really funny and heartwarming. It's like just a, an awkward scene, father and a daughter. On the other hand, it's kind of uncomfortable, right? Uh, the humor and the discomfort come from the father's insistence that the daughter act normal. I mean... If we're honest, the word normal has a lot of emotional force to it for each of us in this room. I mean, most of us spend most of our lives loving and simultaneously hating this idea of normal. Sometimes we feel like it's a good personal goal to be normal. But other times it feels like a prison of other people's expectations for us. College is also this time when you begin to actually realize what's normal isn't always what's good, right? And maybe that started earlier for you, but in classes, political and social beliefs you assumed were universal are questioned. You're being away from home for the first time. You're comparing your classmates' ideas of home and their parents with your parents. And it makes you realize like what you thought was completely normal on a given weekend, say, it's completely not normal for other people. And often you feel it's like push and pull, I'm guessing, I've felt in college and still feel, of these norms, these social and political and family norms. Do you feel that? I mean, is normal just what I grew up with? Is normal what, uh, is what I grew up with actually good? Is there such a thing as normal? A normal that's universal and also good. In our passage tonight, chapter 11 of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah is doing something a bit countercultural. He's laying God's cards down on the table face up for us to see. Isaiah is showing us in poetic language exactly what normal is for God. We get to see exactly what God thinks is normal. And there's this sense that what is normal for God is universally good, universally true, and universally beautiful. So chapter 11 of Isaiah is pushing our imaginations, it's pushing on our beliefs 
It's pushing on our desires. And it's pushing all of these faculties towards hope. Towards a normal that is more a, more a deeply personal goal. It's more than pleasing a professor or a parent. And we're also getting pushed towards a normal that's huge. It's political, it's social, and it's spiritual. And it's broad enough scope that somehow it feels countercultural to all the other human ideologies around it. And the prophet Isaiah tonight is painting a picture. He's pointing us to a God who is the object and the basis for our hope. God is full of hope because he shows us what normal is. God is full of hope because he tells us how to act normal. But he isn't that father who's just harshly, harshly whispering to us in our ear to get up off the floor and be normal. He's also this king. He's this king, more importantly, who's making us and he's making all things normal. He's making all things true and good and beautiful, that sense of normal. So look, in a much shorter sentence, that's a lot to take in. Chapter 11 of Isaiah, verses 1 through 10, in a sentence, shows us this reality. God is our hope. God is our hope because he is making all things, including us, absurdly normal. God's our hope because he's making all things, including us, absurdly normal. So Isaiah paints this picture of normalcy by depicting first, verses 1 through 5 and verse 10, what kind of king God is. And these verses are answering two questions. So there's like sub points if you look on your handout. What is this king's nature and what is his character? Okay, then second, we're going to look in verses 6 through 10, and Isaiah is going to depict what kind of kingdom God rules. And these verses answer the question, what does that kingdom look like then in the future? And what does that kingdom look like now in the present? Okay? So, as usual, that's all in your handout, so don't sweat that one. And we're going to start at the very beginning, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 and verse 10, and we're going to look at who God is as a king according to these verses and what kingship really is at all anyway. So in verses 1 and 10, we see the nature of God's kingship. If you look with me there, you see that he is described, well, naturally, right? He, I just wanted to use a pun just to begin out. Oh, isn't that fun? All right, let's get that out of the way. All right, so he uses a pair of metaphors from nature, right? He's saying... He's explaining who God is and who we are using these metaphors from nature. So let's begin with who God is here. According to verse 1, the future king for Isaiah is a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his, Jesse's roots, that bears fruit. Look, the only king in the entire Bible that is described as of or from Jesse, and not of or from David, is David. King David is the only one who's ever described as of or from Jesse. But David is, by the time Isaiah wrote, roughly 300 years dead in the ground. Okay, so he's, this isn't who he's talking about. Okay, he can't be. So when Isaiah's writing chapter 11, Isaiah's dead. Or Isaiah's dead. Isaiah's alive. <laughs> David's dead. All right, I'll get this one. So this shoot or this branch is pointing towards or forward to somebody who is from the family tree of David, hence the imagery. Jesse was David's father, after all. And then based on that tree imagery here, this future someone will have a humble 
and highly unlikely origin. I don't know. He'll be overlooked. <laughs> I don't know. He'll grow up in po- he'll be born into poverty. He will be grow up in a backwater town. This future someone will uh, come to power in an unlikely time. You know, like say 400 years after the si- God is silent with the prophets and under Roman occupation. In case you're not all shouting the Sunday school Christian answer, Jesus. Okay, that's who we're talking about. Jesus. What, is, what has uh, whiskers and a bushy tail and climbs trees? Jesus is the answer in the Sunday school. Okay, so Jesus. Okay. Verse 10 makes the obvious answer undeniable. Look at the way verse 10 describes Jesus. And that day will be the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples. Look, how can he who is the shoot of Jesse, who's physically descended from Jesse, also be the root of Jesse, someone who comes before the man and the father Jesse? Do you see sort of the dilemma here? It sounds like that time that Jesus is reasoning with the religious professionals uh, near Jerusalem, right? And these leaders ask Jesus how he's related to Abraham. Abraham who lived a long, long time before Jesus. And Jesus, Jesus answers, before Abraham was, I am. And then they proceed to pick up stones and try to kill him. Why is that? Because Jesus is saying in that, in that encounter, and he's also saying, and then Isaiah is saying in chapter 11, verse 10, and verse 1, that Jesus is God. That's why. You see, he's eternal and pre-existent God. And he's the only person who lived way before Abraham and Jesse. He's the root. And yet he's also so fully human that he lived well after the time of Abraham and Jesse, right? He's descended from them. He's not just their root, he's their shoot. To give some horticultural metaphor here. Is everyone tracking? Okay. Look, but if you're kind of internally struggling with how God, uh, how Jesus is both fully man and fully God, then you're in good company here with this passage's imagery because he's going to make it a little bit harder for us. So already that's a little bit complicated, but then you see Jesus is a root and a shoot of a tree stump. Something that by definition is dead. And this historically has some context. The Syrian Empire, as we talked about a couple last couple of weeks, is this, it's in ge- geopolitical expansion mode, moving west, right? And what it's doing, actually, that this, this passage is referencing, is it's clear-cutting cedar trees. Part of its expansion to, buy, to get materials and resources for the war machine is it's clear-cutting cedar tree forests all around Judah and Jerusalem and that those people that Isaiah is writing to. And the hopelessness is both clearly environmental here but also it's political, social, and spiritual hopelessness described by tree stumps. The stump of Jesse represents the cut-down condition of Judah's ruling monarchy, right? As we discussed last week, King Ahaz, he refuses to trust God, even though God gives him a clear word, gives him a clear, miraculous sign. And so he sells Judah something cheap to the Assyrians. But elsewhere, Isaiah also describes the people of God as tree stumps. The people of God were and are buzzsawed. Buzzsawed by different circumstances that are self-inflicted and other-inflicted. 
But amid what felt like this justified cynicism, the people of God, they and we, actually are called to hope for small new shoots. New growth. I like the way that a Christian counselor, um, Adam Young, puts it. He says, he says we say things like this a lot in the Christian world. It's a broken world. It's a broken world. But in hope, that's true, but in hope Christians believe in a Jesus who was born of a middle school virgin. In hope, we believe that Jesus' broken body was resurrected from the grave in this world, in our history. Look, yes, also a common thing that we say to ourselves, Christians know all our longings will not be met this side of heaven. But here's the thing. We don't know which longings will be met and which longings will not be met in this world and in this life. So, look, if the world, maybe your world right now, feels like a field full of stumps, just tree stumps everywhere, you feel completely undateable. We long for deeper friendships. We just want to be on the inside of some group. You can't start that thing. You can't stop that behavior. You want to get A's, or you just, for Pete's sake, want to get a C. In these tree stumps, we get to hope for what feels sometimes disappointing and impossible. Do you get that imagery? What would it look like to groan inwardly and to outwardly wait expectantly for that internship? Instead of just like putting it out of our mind for six weeks after we did the interview. What would it look like to bring your specific romantic desires to God? To long for and expect God to allow you to meet a wonderful, not just available, someone else. I know, maybe that hill a little close to hill. I'm sorry, I told you I wasn't going to give you advice. What does it look like to wrestle with God's goodness when he doesn't answer your safety prayers? You know what I mean by that? The ones that felt like totally selfless. The ones that you felt like there's no way he's not going to answer this prayer. It's right up his alley. What do you do when that happens? Isaiah 11 is calling us to what can feel like an absolutely absurd hope. But I think the absurdity is just italicized by the culture that we live in. I think we live in a cynical tree stump culture. <laughs> okay, let me explain. I just, here's just a sample. How many times, just in the last 50 years, has North American and European intelligentsia declared that God is dead? How many times have they said that the church is dead? That Christianity is finally finished? How many times has that happened? Countless. In fact, it happened so often, and it's happened for so long, that a guy who lived in the early 1900s, G.K. Chesterton, wrote this quote that is like this brilliant shoot-like rebuttal to this very modern hot take. Okay, here's how it goes. At least five times, therefore, with the Aryan and the Albigensian, with the humanist skeptic, after Voltaire and after Darwin, the Christian faith 
has to all appearance gone to the dogs. But listen to this line. In each of these five cases, it was the dog that died. <laughs> okay, great line. Okay, and he means that literally and he means that figuratively. Okay, let's unpack it. What Chesterton means is that Christianity and the church are still thriving. I'm going to give you a little bit of a sample. The Christian faith is numerically exploding in East Asia and the Southern Hemisphere. Pick a country, any country, Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, South Africa, any one of those five. Just pick one of those countries on any given Sunday, and there will be more Anglicans in that one country worshiping in that small African country than the entirety of Great Britain and America put together. That's how big it's blowing up in the Southern Hemisphere. And Chesterton asks, and I think it's a good question, how many Arians or Albigensians or Voltaire followers do you know? Or you could argue, how many Darwinists or human skeptics are there in Africa? And let's be careful not to utter a colonialism about Africa's lack of civilization. The point is, Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection can seem so small in this world that we occupy. But he is so full of life. He is so worthy of hoping in. Look no further than Jesus' signal or banner for the peoples, verse 10. You know what the signal of the banner for the peoples is? It's the church. It's the local church. The object of the most skepticism but also the most power and hope. Under constant assault, within and without, for almost 2,000 years and counting, the church, Jesus' church, his banner, his signal, still stands and it spans worldwide. Why? How is this possible? Listen to this, this missions uh, theologian, Leslie Newb, again. The church is a humble weekly place where the truth is spoken and celebrated, where God is praised and thanked, where God's grace is given and received to be poured out in care for the neighborhood. Here is where we learn to live in the story that God tells us or the Bible tells us, to affirm it as our own story, to see our contemporary world in light of the true story. And here's where we can learn to question the assumptions that are taken for granted in the world outside. The local congregation is the only effective hermeneutic, read, banner, or signal for the gospel. Okay? What Newbigin is saying there is that the local church is a banner that weekly reminds us who God is and what he's about. We practice what we believe. We don't just think about it in an isolation. Our hope the good news of the gospel is what this person, this God, is all about. And you see the church, to quote the star-spangled banner, gallantly streams. It waves wide for all to see some good news. Good news for the skeptic, good news for the follower alike. And here's the good news. Simple. Jesus reigns as king. And some of you are like, that's it? That's the gospel? That's what the central message of Christianity is? Like, this is what all the Christian fuss is? This is what the snacks in the back are for? What's this about? It really comes down to this humble shoot, Jesus, that he's a king 
And he will reign, and his reign will branch out across the world. What is so important about this king and his kingdom anyway? And to answer our inner critics, which we all have one, let's start with some questions. Let's start with these questions. How do we even know that Jesus is a king from this passage? And also, what kind of king is he? And now, now we're finally on point one, sub point B, okay? So if you look at way two, verses two and five through five are describing the shoe of Jesse, it's clear that they're just rattling off attributes of a true and ideal king. He's far better than any king we've ever seen or could even possibly imagine. Look, like other biblical kings, Jesus has the spirit rest upon him. But unlike all other kings before and after him, he has perfect wisdom and understanding. That is, Jesus truly understands life and how to live it well in the big picture. And in the small picture, he deeply sees what's going on in any given situation, in any person's life, heart, or mind. Jesus has the counsel to make brilliant and undefeatable plans, and he has the valor or the might to carry out these plans to his exact specifications. And his immense knowledge and his contagious delight are grounded in his fear of the Lord. Jesus' deep and reverence for God the Father, from whom he is begotten eternally. Verse 4 underlines his superior kingly abilities by stressing how righteous and just Jesus is. That he deals with the most downtrodden, the most out-resourced, as well as the most evil. And he does it so well. You see, a king in Jesus' world is a supreme judge. He's a supreme judge. And this judge judges like all other judges with his words and his breath alone. He sets things to right by his word and his breath. So much so that the most basic articles of clothing that he owns, the belt, right, the sash, the, they represent the most basic or fundamental characteristic of who he is. And their commitment to what's true. That is his righteousness. Their steadfast loyalty to what righteousness requires. His faithfulness. I mean, perhaps... J.R.R. Tolkien got closest to this picture with his character of Aragorn, whether you're a movie fan or a book fan, or both, of Lord of the Rings, okay? Aragorn, like Jesus, was known to heal sufferings and to fight evil. He had that old sword, do you remember that, that was sort of legendary, historical, and it was sheared off into a stump only. And guess what? It's reforged to grow back into a rod of justice, a weapon of might and righteousness. But look, it is so easy to go through this list of adjectives and these descriptors and go like amid this description of like glory and honor. It's so easy not to turn our eyes upon Jesus and to look full in his wondrous face. And I think this Jen Wilkins gets this point, Jen Wilkins gets to this point in her book like no other. She describes this trip like where she goes to Mere Woods near San Francisco. Maybe Royce has been there. And while she and her husband are gawking at these 800-year-old, 250-foot-high redwood trees, she turns, like, mouth still open, right? Mouth breathing, open, eyes huge, saucers. She turns and she sees an 8-year-old boy playing Minecraft on an iPad. 
in the middle of this majestic woods. And at first she's like in shock. But then she thinks more about it spiritually and she realizes that she too is prone to miss the majesty that is right in front of us. And I think God realizes that. And that's why this passage doesn't end at verse 5. That's why God is, uh, he realizes that we miss majesty too. We miss a majesty that's even far older than 800 years. We miss a majesty that's far mightier than 250 foot high forest full of redwood trees. Therefore, God through Isaiah is really laying the majesty on thick in verses 6 through 10. So here we move from Jesus' matchless resume in verses 1 through 5. And now we're getting to Jesus' matchless career. This is what he's all about. What Jesus can and will accomplish in his kingdom in verses 6 through 10. That's our second and final main point. Let's look at the what of these verses before we look at the so what. Verses 6 through 10 describe the kingdom then in the future. If last week's passage in Isaiah 9, if you were here, was primarily about the dawn of a new peace, chapter 11 is about high noon. The peace is blazing down on us in this passage. If last week's passage in Isaiah 9 was primarily about Jesus' first coming, like his birth and his life 2,000 years ago in the first century, this passage in chapter 11 is about Jesus' second coming. In the future, no one knows when exactly, don't let them fool you, or what century it will be. But we, if we don't know when, and verses 6 through 10 do tell us what to expect. Jesus will one day and someday come to this planet Earth and make all things new. I want you to hear that really carefully. We talk about the, sometimes we talk about that too much, some of you have never heard that. Jesus will come to this planet Earth and he will make all things new. He will not make all new things. He will make all things new. This means he's not going to trash the old and start all over. He will fix what's here. In the words of theologian Al Walters, God doesn't create junk. Nor does he junk what he's created. Jesus won't bring newly shrink-wrapped wolves and lambs and leopards and calves. He won't bring a newly straight from the packaging and bubble wrap me. Okay? He's going to make me more like myself. He's going to make you more like yourself on purpose. He's going to make me look more like Jesus, but in an absolutely personal and unique way. And the same thing is already happening here and now culturally. Here's how the African theologian Lamansana says, puts it. Lamansana says this, when Africans become Christians, their Africanness is converted, completed, and resolved, not replaced with Europeanness or something else. Through Christianity, Africans get distance enough to critique their traditions, yet still inhabit them. He's going to take culture, and he's going to make it better. He's already doing that. Verses 6 through 8 also show us that this heaven come to earth will be much more than that cultural stereotype we all have in our hearts and minds of the see-through people plucking harps on wispy clouds with this, like, white-out backdrop. Okay? Have you seen that famous Far Side cartoon where the guy's up on the cloud 
and he's like he's kind of like there's a thought bubble and it says I wish I'd brought a magazine <laughs> it's like super boring <laughs> Um, that's not how it's going to be. Nature will no longer be red in tooth and claw. Natural prey and natural predators will lie down, they'll graze, and they're going to play, most importantly, together. Toddlers and pull-ups will be lion tamers. Infants without neck control will be snake charmers. The curse of death and hostility that came into the world in Genesis chapter 3 will be completely reversed, undone, starting with the relationship between human beings and snakes and spreading to wolves and lambs and every which way and every how and why. A pair of scholars' words put it this way. There will be a pervasive reconciliation seeping into every pore of God's creation. The whole creation will be put back into joint. You hear that language of organism. But according to verses 9 and 10, peace on earth was going to look more than the end of hostilities, which is amazing. That would be awesome. That is like the prayer every Christmas and every day of many people's lives. There would be peace on earth. The end of hostility, the end of violence. But actually the Bible means more than that. It means It's not just a ceasefire of evils, not just a ceasefire of antis. God's internationally diverse people and everything else will enter into God's eternal rest, God's eternal holiness, God's eternal joy. The fullness of the knowledge of the Lord, sweet, personal, intimate communion with Jesus is going to enfold the earth like a warm hug as the waters hug the seas or cover the seas. Okay, you're thinking, that's really beautiful, (laughs) Sid, but it seems really, really far away. I mean, when's the last time you went snake charming with a toddler or an infant? What about now? How does this relate to Davidson College circa 2019? Oh, I can think of two main ways. My last two thoughts. First, We get to live as a colony of the coming kingdom. That is, we get to become agents of transformation. We get to be agents of this vision of restoration in the here and in the now. Your education and your relationships are at the very least training you for this kind of advocacy work, this cosmic advocacy work, to hope, to pray, to even live for others, new heavens and new earth, this kind of welfare. This certain future destination actually orients us like a GPS to the kind of lives that make people say, ah, that's how people are going to live when righteousness takes over. It's a quote of Lewis Smead. He says, when we live this kind of life that reflects this kind of reality, where we're going, People will stop and say, that's what it's going to look like. I always wondered. And so let's try it on. Can, we, can you do this together? Let's try on building beauty on this campus. Let's give a go at healing and peacemaking in our relationships. Let's be with other people in such a way that we forget ourselves in the listening and the laughing and the crying. Let's begin again to ask hard questions about the world's problems. And let's practice eternal 
rest, holiness, and joy in the very temporary. And I'm going to end with what it, what it feels like and looks like to look into or to live into that hope. That hope of God's rest, that hope of God's holiness, that hope of God's joy. In the now. With your permission, I'm going to finish the story I started at the very beginning. Okay. <laughs> As I said earlier, after laying down in the middle of the DMV, this, the teenage girl um, on the spectrum managed to get up in time and meet her instructor and she takes the driving test. 20 to 30 minutes later, she comes back to the waiting room. The dad is a nervous wreck. He can barely whisper, how'd it go? The daughter points behind her shoulder and, asks, and tells him uh, to ask her instructor. So the father quietly moves up and asks the driving instructor how his daughter did. The instructor smiles and tells him she did well. She passed. And the dad is so excited that he picks up his teenage daughter off of her feet, hugs her to his chest, and then starts to wildly waltz up and down the waiting room of the DMV in Connecticut. This is a true story. In front of all the staring workers, in front of the whispering parents and teenagers, dad and daughter are in full out blue Danube waltz, complete with humming and turns and yes, dips. After several long sequences of this, the daughter looks around at the staring DMV and she starts to loudly whisper in her father's ear, Dad, this is definitely not normal. This is definitely not normal. Here's the thing. Around week five, mid-February, Davidson College can start to feel like the Connecticut DMV. But that's not your normal. Our normal is a God whose love of us, whose excitement over our attempts at righteousness, lead him to pick us up off our feet and drag us into a wild waltz. Yes, look, dancing with God is going to lead to some stairs. And it's definitely not Davidson normal. But hope in God, living for others, is somehow even better than a celebration waltz and a drab DMV. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this passage. It's, it's challenging and it's, and it's beautiful. Help us to, to hold on to the imagery here and not to, to push it away. Um, I can feel that in my heart. It's, it's hard to think of the this worldly good of it. But I pray that you would challenge our hearts to reconfigure um, our understanding. That you'd meet us where we are with that. That you'd not let us leave this room with the same mind frame. That you'd make it bigger. That you'd make it holier. That you'd make it more joyful. Would you make it more hopeful, Jesus, for us, for me? Would you do that once again through your word? Once again through the prophecy of Isaiah? In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank uh-huh.